0: seeing Wakanda, I'm like, that's what I want, that right there.
1: Hello, and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie.
2: And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking with Jackie Cardinal founder and director of Nayarwin. Welcome Jackie.
0: Hello, hello.
2: So we first heard about you via a mutual friend called Maz. She had actually been over in Edmonton and when she came back, she was literally raving about Edmonton so much. I was concerned she would immediately move there. Can you set the scene about Edmonton and what people love about it so much?
0: Yeah, actually, I, you know, it's really interesting to me that when people come to visit, they really like it because there's such, especially when you're in like high school and junior high growing up here, this like, oh, we need to like get the heck out of Edmonton. So we'll, you know, like we'll try to go to university elsewhere. And um, A lot of people that end up going, that have grown up here, end up going traveling and then they come back and they're like, something's really special about this place. And a lot of people actually, you know, end up living kind of and working abroad and then coming back. So, you know, and I, and I feel like if I were to ask a hundred people that do that, they came back would be we'd get a hundred different answers but I think that the amount of green space is like really is, is a real draw for people just the amount of, of kind of outdoor activities you can do arts culture is really strong here and at least for me and I think what um, Maria probably found interesting was uh, a lot of the work that that I'm able to do I'm working specifically with indigenous people's rights in, in Canada and it's uh, Edmonton has actually been recognized as a really important place for that work since you know time immemorial it's it's actually a place that um, our Archaeologists and anthropologists have referred to the cradle of civilization uh, in North America is where Edmonton is situated right now. So, and, and, you know, into the 60s and 70s with the big, you know, Alberta Indian movement up here. And then, uh, and then now there's a lot of really interesting scholarly work and community grassroots work happening here with that work. And, you know, I I think there's something in the spirit of the place. I mean, of course I would say that, but I think there's something really important here. This place has been a gathering place for millennia and I think people really get that feeling. So, yeah, that's, that's my take. But I think a lot of people really love the festivals and uh, and the really interesting multicultural community we have up here.
2: Yeah, that sounds really cool. As someone who's recently moved to Wellington in New Zealand, I totally appreciate this idea about having lots of um, beautiful green spaces. It really makes a big difference to your day to day life. And that's so interesting what you say about Edmonton being the kind of heart of civilization. One of the things that we obviously do before the podcast is a lot of research. And one of the cool things about you is that you've written quite powerfully on stories and especially origin stories. That's something that we're really passionate about, too. So could you tell us a little bit about your origin story to our listeners?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I, it's, it's really tough to say kind of where my story begins because in, in Cree culture, I'm, I'm a Cree woman. We almost have this um, interesting way of thinking about time and connection and who we are as individuals as being very, very connected to all the people of that have come before us and all the people that have yet to come. So when I think about my origin story, I actually reflect on a teaching that I got from one of our elders that, you know, each person that is born is an answer to a prayer that was made by someone in their community, that was made by someone in their family, either very recently or sometime in the in the distant past. And and for me that's been I think getting that teaching and trying to fall low and like try and try and really find out exactly what prayer that I'm answering is kind of the root of where um, I began doing this work in the public sector and, and with Indigenous people's rights in Canada. You know, but I, I uh, you know, like more practically, I think that when I when I reflect on getting involved in this work, it was actually kind of happenstance. I kind of fell into it. As I mentioned before, you know, that my family has been um, actually very involved in all of the movements that have happened in this part of the world for Indigenous people's rights. So I think that it was a little bit of a part of my DNA in being born into my family and seeing how um, and just just seeing how it how important it was and how inherently being um, being an indigenous person in the last century it is so political. So I think that understanding that from a very young age was really important for me to see, Okay, so you know my great uncle Harold Cardinal was a big leader in the indigenous community in the sixties and seventies, and actually, you know, well into his his career later. And seeing how how that was a great part of 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 who he was in our in our family. So I think I think I kind of fell into it. But originally, my real interest was actually in in technology, and that was something that I pursued quite a bit when I was younger. And then as I got older, you know, being able to kind of work remotely, I that's I met Maria when I was actually living in Brighton. Thank you. was, I mean, it feels like a million years ago now, but I think it was like five, five or six years ago. And I, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, work remotely and support myself and, you know, run my little kind of marketing company um, that enabled me to do that. And, you know, after a while, I just felt really, I just felt distinctly unmoored. I just felt like I I really had no real rooting. And that was something that, you know, was, I, I couldn't have really identified perhaps and put into words. But when I came back to Edmonton and I had a little bit more of a chance to connect with my younger brother, um, not so little anymore, uh, Hunter, then I was able to really discover that in this little bit of existential uh, kind of worry about like, you know, not only who am I, but what am I doing here? I think I was able to really consider the work that that I'm doing now and finding my way into it as, you know, maybe this technology interest that I have that can really have a home with the work that, um, you know, that needs to be done in our communities. And, you know, for your listeners, I'm not entirely aware of kind of the the understanding that everybody has about where indigenous rights are in Canada but right now we're kind of in the we've been reacting and trying to follow the direction of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action that were released I think four years ago now so uh, you know the country as a whole has this great kind of appetite to do you know quote-unquote the right thing in this this effort to bring reconciliation to Canada you know renew this relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples up here so so yeah so I, I think I think kind of matching it that way was uh, was how we got into to
2: it. and And just to jump um, back to a bit about what you were saying about technology, that's obviously something that our listeners are really interested in. What, what is it that got you into technology in the first place?
0: Oh, that's so tough. I mean, like I always, it's interesting kind of looking back. I like some of my first memories are actually in front of my parents, like Mac 2 when I was like three years old and kind of playing little Snoopy games and just kind of poking around um, when I got a little bit older on the very early internet and and that kind of stuff. And so I think that I was always fascinated by it. I think in general, I'm really excited about learning about things, just anything. I've always been, uh, and I think that I am, I've always been really fascinated with this idea that we live in this age of information where you can have a question and find an answer and I think I really recognize that that's like super weird and new um, as far as for um, for uh, how people kind of operate in the world so I think I was always interested in it and then as I got older I always saw it as a kind of uh, part of the means uh, like a means to an end so in junior high and high school I was really interested in learning about cameras I loved making film um, so being able to use technology that way was cool and then as I got older again I met Maria she was doing a digital media uh in Brighton, and, and and that was something that I I really uh, I already had kind of a background in. I took a a short, just like six-month program after. Uh, high school because I didn't exactly know what I was doing. Um, so I took that small course and started kind of a web development company. So it was always kind of, for me, it's always been this, in the back of my mind, something I've really been fascinated in. And it's only been recently now, especially working more in our indigenous communities, that I see that actually this kind of technologist mindset that I've kind of inherently always had is something that's actually useful because there are a lot of problems in our communities that can be solved with technology. Not only that, a lot of these new high-tech concepts that are coming out around, especially blockchain and crypto currencies are things that I believe personally can really enable our, our indigenous governance to really take hold and become something that isn't just hearkening into the past and trying to bring just, you know, some old ways of, of, of governing ourselves forward in a way that is very like a technology, like where we don't actually use technology to do it, but where we can actually harness these technologies to, uh, to become something new, um, but it, that is rooted in something old.
2: Yeah, I saw a lot of that on your Twitter. And I thought that was so cool. That kind of blend of what you were saying there, something really old with something really new. Yeah, I thought that that those were really interesting ideas. You mentioned just there that you started your own company. And I think that was when you were at university. And that is something that I don't know many people have done. So you're a serial entrepreneur, essentially, what made you start your own businesses? And are there any lessons from those experiences that you'd like to share?
0: You know, I think really like the real reason I started my businesses to start out with because uh, like this started back in like junior high and high school, my parents were like, go get a job. And I was like, sure. And then I basically just like biked around my neighborhood, uh, buying things from garage sales and selling them on eBay until I got caught. And my parents were like, well, I guess she's making, I guess like she's getting the end kind of goal that we wanted her to, which was, you know, again, I was getting into film at that time. So I, I needed money to buy stuff. And so I wouldn't just bother them for paying for my tapes or cameras or whatever. But I think that that was the real kind of reason is this a little bit of, I don't want, to do the exact same thing that everybody else is doing. i like to be able to kind of play with the amount of time I can put in to get, you know, a given kind of result. So if I can do, you know, three hours of work and get paid, you know, the same amount that, you know, one of my friends would get paid for like a couple weeks, like to me, that sounds like a huge win. So I was very excited about that. I think again, because of, you know, when I was growing up, the kind of technologist, a little bit of a hacker mindset was something that was seeded very early and I was rewarded quite early for it as well. So, but yeah, I mean, I think as I got older, I really saw it as a means for freedom. I saw it as a means for um, actually learning a really important lesson, which is that you know people find it very valuable when you solve a problem without being asked. And I think that that was actually really important just for kind of like my personal development growing up. And then as I got older and older, just seeing kind of the, uh, you know, when I migrated from a very kind of solopreneur, just kind of working by myself and kind of moving into working with teams, working with larger clients, um, partnerships, it really showed me again as well, like how, how, on a personal level, how much working with others can, um, can really facilitate your work, having a bigger impact. Like there's that saying, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go together. And that was something that I, that I learned there. So I don't know, in a way, and this is something that I've talked with my, my brother about quite often, because his first company was when we founded Nheyo. And, you know, we were, we've been kind of reflecting and just being like, oh, wow, like this is actually an interesting dojo almost that we have, you know, this ability to, you know, within this kind of uh, bubble that we built, for ourself that is our company, we can, you know, kind of do whatever we want on the inside, as long as we can pay our bills and pay taxes and can make sure that we're providing value to the community. And I think that really allows you to be very creative. So that's, that's kind of where that came from. But yeah, I I love starting businesses. I really like, again, being able to just spot a problem and solve it without being asked and uh, kind of pulling up your own chair to the community table.
1: That's amazing. So the, the kind of means for freedom that you spoke about, I think will resonate with a lot of people. And that's, that's often the space where we find we're able to solve problems most effectively. So you're managing director of Nahaya Wynn. Can you tell us a bit more about the mission of your organization?
0: Yeah, for sure. When we when we first started Nahawen, we had more of a question than a business plan. You know, we really wanted to understand how can we take these ancient indigenous um kind of teachings and governance principles and bring them into today? Because I mentioned before when we were, you know, seeing at the time it was 2 years after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and we had this appetite in the community to uh, you know, to make amends and to do better as a country. There wasn't a lot of really practical, okay, so what does that exactly mean? Like we have this kind of big hairy audacious goal of you know, mending these relationships, but what is the, what is the way to do that? And um, we were really fascinated again by that question. So, you know, with a lot of pivoting, we essentially found our way into doing quite a bit of public engagement, as well as diversity and inclusion training uh, and strategy for, uh, you know, public institutions as well as um, as well as private companies. So, you know, our real mission at the end of the day is to bring forward this uh, this concept that has been very central to our family and almost all of the work that we've been doing, which is bringing forward the spirit of treaty. And uh, Treaty is something that I think pretty much everybody knows probably in the context of the, you know, the Western concept of like post-conflict, this is a paper that we sign and then we'll stop, you know, uh, we'll stop the carnage and uh, you'll give us your stuff and we'll, we'll agree that this is, you know, that we won and you lost and blah, blah, blah. I kind of divvy up the, the fruits of the war. So, but in a, in an indigenous context, basically what we have is we, we consider treaties and, in each indigenous group, we actually have different words for it. And our language is Nistutamuk, which is much more of a relationship, much more based in understanding, as opposed to a kind of a, you know, an saying uncle, for example. So, you know, so this idea of treaty being a kind of a pre-conflict, let's build a relationship, let's, you know, adopt each other as brothers and sisters, and let's share the bounty of the land going forward into perpetuity. And it's a relationship that we're entering was something that, you know, myself and my brother and pretty much everybody that we've worked with has read. Resonated, resonated quite deeply because, you know, beyond wanting to do the right thing, build a Canada that we can feel less guilty about from the perspective of, of non-Indigenous Canadians, I think that there's a real crisis of identity in Canada. I think that, you know, if we're discovering that this, this story that we were all told growing up about who we are, what we believe in, um, that we're a place that considers our diversity, our strength, that, um, you know, we're the kinder, gentler, um, you know, cousins to the North of the of the uh, Americans then, and we're finding that, you know, just, just, you know, the reality, the history that's coming out now, especially around how we've treated our Indigenous peoples, who are we? And I think that that's been something that we've really uh, recognized in our work. And we really speak to that quite a lot. And, and in through doing that, we found that not only do we need to mend this relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, but we really need to share teachings from our Indigenous peoples with non-Indigenous peoples so they can feel like they're connected to the land. I mean, I can't imagine, like as I was mentioning before, with how you know deep and rich the history of, of Edmonton is, I can't imagine feeling like you're an intruder. On these territories and i can't imagine how that would you know inform how you would think about development and how we want to treat the people that live here i i really fundamentally believe and this is inherent in so much of the work that we do that if people feel connected to each other and to the places that we live we will make different choices and i think choices that are more in line with again who we actually are as canadians
1: Absolutely. I've been in Canada since January and it's been really meaningful to me to learn more about that history. I'm just I'm conscious that we've got a really international audience and not everyone will be aware of Canadian history as, as much as we are. Would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit about what the treaties were and why the work around that is so important?
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, actually, like I would almost want to like refer you to uh, my brother because he's much more of the kind of like the historian and the the one who's been able to really dig into that stuff. I'm kind of more of a of a present day problem solver and applying those our learnings from history and being able to use that today. But but I can do my very best. So so actually, when Canada was first being developed as a, as a nation, we were called Rupert's Land I think for the longest time. And we were when we were first really forming our concept of our of our nation state. One of The things that the crown basically said that we had to do prior to uh, forming our constitution, being able to say, "Okay, we are sovereign nation," was treat with the indigenous peoples. So essentially, what that means is, you know, this concept of terra nullius, or that the land was empty um, when the uh, the explorers, quote unquote, arrived. That it was clear that that wasn't the case at the time, and that the non indigenous peoples that were coming to that territory, they needed to be able to actually make agreements with the indigenous peoples that were there. um, Say, okay, this is, you know, in exchange for sharing the land this is what you'll get. In in that uh, process of developing those treaties, the first one being the the two row wampum between the Dutch and the Haudenosaunee, where in the East, um, was a, that was one of the first ones. I believe that was 1613. That relationship really, because there were thousands of emissaries that actually came to witness that treaty making um, way back then from all over Canada. We have hit we have a history, a, an oral history of, of our people going and then coming back and talking about what had happened and what they had seen and the importance of that relationship and how... We we were stating the kind of writing on the wall that this was going to be happening more and more. The process of creating the numbered treaties in the 1800s started to happen basically in the order of you know where the uh, the newcomers decided okay there's a gold rush so we need to treat with the indigenous peoples around where the uh, the gold was actually being found so they would go out and and make those those agreements so treaty so the numbered treaties which are primarily on the uh, the plains area in canada so it's treaty one two three go on and on so i believe there's 11 of them um my family um, were signatories and negotiators in treaty eight and treaty six and treaty six is where uh, edmonton is situated so these agreements kind of have two parts in at least the way that I've I've learned about them. We have the you know the Western understanding of what the treaty is, which is you know the typical things that 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 Indigenous um, sorry that non Indigenous people want, which is you know understanding how we're gonna who owns the land, who can be here, and kind of what are the rules. And so the but for the non Indigenous people, very much in line with this. Um, uh, sorry for the indigenous people the very core of that relationship was was much more based in ceremony was much more in the in the understanding that this relationship would go on as long as the sun shines the grass grows and the rivers flow these very um and we had a lot of ceremonies actually around the negotiation and signing of the treaties you know so we have that understanding of the the spirit and intent is what it's called of the treaties and that is what actually has been upheld more often now in uh in the courts in canada um, so that's something that um, you're seeing more and more kind of indigenous peoples you know putting forward these uh like land claims for example there was a big one actually in Alberta here and a lot of things that have been put in in BC so it's, we're finding that the the uh, the Canadian courts are a lot more on our side and and so you know these these treaties that were signed were actually Canada could not exist it's literally you know older than our constitution these agreements and so it's been interesting to see how much these agreements are impacting our world today and I don't think that people understand that indigenous or no everyone is a treaty person because of that th- these agreements that we have here so again a lot of of people, especially non-Indigenous folks, and from the perspective of the uh, the Canadian government, they were very you know focused on ceding land, of you know giving up land and the rights to land, and basically becoming a separate um, you know class of citizen. Um, And uh, again, all of these things, it's very it's very legal and very, (laughs) very, very annoying, especially when, um, you know, the work that we're doing is very focused on how do we bring forward that spirit and intent of the relationship that was supposed to be brought forward and make sure that that finds its way in the hearts of of the people living here today and how that can actually push forward um, where we're going now as Canadians in the post Truth and Reconciliation Commission era.
1: Absolutely. That's really great to hear. And you talk about how you've created this new business model based in the Indigenous principles. Could you ground that a little bit in in the reality of the world and, and talk us through maybe an example of how that works in practice?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, uh, a lot of our work that we do, we try to, we really try to focus on capacity building. So uh, this is something that a lot of folks talk about, especially when we're talking about the Indigenous community and non-Indigenous people's um, ability to understand the Indigenous experience in Canada and what needs to actually be done moving forward. You know, there's, there's, uh, I think someone said that, you know, on reserve, so these are, this was part of actually the treaty agreements. You know, you have these reserved lands set aside um, for Indigenous peoples to use Moving forward. Of course, that was translated by the Canadian government as you have to live on there or else we'll take away your treaty rights. And that existed well into actually the 60s. So because we're working on this concept of building capacity in our communities, we really focus on a lot of actually workshops. So the way that we approach those are pretty different. We we've really brought over how we would have learned um, and been given teachings in our communities and brought those into a workshop context. So often we bring in a lot of ceremony into pretty much everything that we do. So when we bring in folks to say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna teach you about kind of indigenous concepts of treaty and how that can really change the way that you think about diversity and inclusion in your organization. We sit them down again, in, in, in the same way that Hunter and I have learned quite a bit from our community. We sit with them and basically just tell them stories and try to engage in conversation and really be as generous as we can with these teachings. And, you know, I, I've recently been to British Columbia and started to engage more with the indigenous peoples out there. And there seems to be at least among some of the nation's a very clear belief that like these traditions are ours and we should not share them and i totally get that and at the same time in in my community sucker creek and um, the Segway Inuak the wood creek you know there's this a real belief that no these teachings are for us to share especially with people that we believe need and so that was just something that was very interesting that i saw and so we're very careful as well to try to try to not, you know, say to people like, this is what all Indigenous people believe. And we are sharing these, you know, with the express um, consent of every single Indigenous person in Canada. And instead we say, this is what our family taught us. And this is what we can teach you, and this is how you can think differently about about things like diversity and inclusion. And it's it was kind of funny to find that gap in the market because um, for diversity and inclusion uh, training, especially in the art spaces, because you know I, I don't think that I would have considered you know my work and the work that um, you know that my people have been doing and the tools that we were given as something that would be so easily kind of nestled into the the round peg in the in the round hole of of what's going on in the arts community. So being able to actually bring those teachings in and be able to say okay so when you're thinking about diversity and inclusion here is this concept of tata wow which means there is room and it really kind of brings in this whole concept of how do we transfer our thinking about people being able to fit into spaces and the diverse spaces and the diverse people that we have how do we have and adopt a more Abundant way of thinking about these things. How do we say we're not just pulling up a, another chair around a really cramped table? In fact, you know, we actually have an ability in each of us to continually make space for others, and then really um, supplement that teaching with with others. Again, rooted very much in treaty. So, so again, it's, it's very rooted in just trying to, as best we can, as cleanly as we can, bring. The old these old ideas and ways of organizing again sitting with people answering questions and being generous and bringing them as uh, as whole as we can into our present day so the the workshops have been um, particularly something that we've been interested in and um, and uh, yeah and we've been actually Hunter and I we've been working on a on a play. Um, So in our fundraising processes for that play that's coming out in January, we've been holding calling in ceremonies, which is essentially we're trying to reapproach how we're doing basically any kind of arts creation using our um, Indigenous governance principles. So one of the things that we have are these evenings where people come and they sit with us, we share um, the kind of spirit of the story that we're going to be telling and actually invite them to take part in ceremony with us. And so... I think just in general, trying to bring more of the sacred in, into the mundane of doing this kind of work is is really how we've um, innovated within the space.
2: Oh my god, I love that idea of bringing the sacred into the mundane, and um, I think that um, it's so good to hear that the art space is um, uh, um, taking on a, a lot of the learnings around diversity and inclusion and, and inviting you folks in because. I always associate diversity and inclusion workspaces with, um, or workshops with really corporate events and yeah. corporate um companies. So that's really good um to hear that they're actually also taking this stuff on. Especially as art can be seen as a a really um kind of elitist space. Um, so, yeah, one of the things that we do uh, is uh, before the interviews is always do a sort of deep dive into your medium posts and what you write about. And what we really loved about yours was how personal a lot of the things you've written about are. And we're just going to dive into some of the interesting ideas and stories that you've shared. Um So one of the cool things about being in the startup scene and startup culture is that Once you succeed, it's quite cool to talk about startups that have failed. And I think that that's a unique perspective that you have as opposed to some of our other guests. So I was just wondering if you could share any stories about failed startups and anything you've learned from those.
0: It's interesting when I at least think of like my entrepreneurial journey, because I feel like failure has been such an important part of my development. Um, It's like the most starkly black and white, the decision that you made to get here was the wrong one. And so when I think about, you know, my time, working uh, on my various projects it's it's actually like failure has been so important and trying to speak more openly about failure and about you know what we struggle with is something that been um, something that I've I've tried to do and and you know in in you saying as well that like how personal do I try to be you know I really believe that we should each try and be the people that we needed when we were younger and I feel like especially as a as a woman in a traditionally you know male-dominated field primarily in my career actually even now I would say that it's it's a, a lot of uh, men are very active in this space being able to be honest about how hard it is and how um, how much you change and about how deeply I think that if you're at least doing it right you allow yourself to be transformed by your experiences I don't know I I think that um, I think that especially having friends in these spaces as well has been interesting to see how they've been able to kind of move forward and through their challenges for me I've I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting how when, when we think about failure, when we think about, um, working on our businesses and, you know, that kind of like hustle, you know, mindset that, that so many entrepreneurs have, how often, how, how bad that can be, how unhealthy that can be for all of us and how actually providing a little bit more space, a little bit more, um, separating yourself from your work. And as much as I love my work and as much as I, you know, I actually typically make it my, my business to really love what I do. Um, to always maintain that separateness, because at the end of the day, you know, you you aren't what you do. Um, you you aren't what you've built and I think that making sure that those are separate are very important again I, I look back on the history of my family and the you know the, the wrongs that were done and the things that were taken away and I think that kind of seeing that if if something that can if there is something that you have that can be taken away from you be it the fruits of your labor or, or something that you inherited if there's something that can be taken away from you you know don't don't hold on to it. and uh, you know that's I think that's uh, it, it sounds like a little bit of a sad place to kind of get that teaching from but i I think it's important and, um, and I think that it's important also to model that to our kids and, you know, the young ones that are, that are watching us and looking for us to lead. So, um, so yeah, failure is, is hugely important. Um, and it's, it's been, it's been a really wonderful teacher to me. And I find as long as you are willing and ready for that teacher to show up, um, then as it will, you can, you can develop really, really quickly and learn things that you wouldn't be able to learn any other way and model again to our youth. Hey, this is when something doesn't go right. This is how we act. You know, we are not what we do. We are not the mistakes that we've made. We are, you know, we are separate from that.
2: We've seen that you've described yourself as a radical optimist. And that really comes through in that answer. Um, And from what you've, uh, what we talked about so far, um, that must be a really hard thing to sustain, especially in these times. What do you think it is about yourself that keeps yourself going and keeps yourself optimistic?
0: Oh, man. Okay. So like, there's a, there's a few things that come to mind when I, when I think about that, I think, you know, it's something that I don't actually talk about that often. And for no other reason that I think it's really not very interesting is that I really actually struggled with quite a bit of depression when I was younger. Um, it was something that it felt now that I reflect now as like an older person looking at, you know, my 14 year old feelings, it felt like a lot of grief. I felt like I was seeing that the world that I thought was there was actually never there. And it felt like a loss, um, you know, understanding and learning about the history of my family, understanding and learning what the world actually is like, what people can do to each other, I think was quite overwhelming. It was something that I saw very clearly. And, you know, I, I actually held on to those feelings for a very, very long time. It wasn't until, I don't know, mid twenties that I really felt like I was able to reach out to my culture and look for guidance there. Cause I feel like that's what I really needed. And I didn't, I didn't know to ask for it. And it was also not something that I was, you know, incredibly surrounded by growing up. My family is very loving, but I think that, um, you know, sometimes you, you don't get everything that you need from your, your family and you need those supports elsewhere and I just didn't I just didn't have that thing that I needed for me the thing that really changed a lot of that was going and traveling and seeing that the world is actually like for for all the negativity that it it brings a lot of the time there's a lot of there's a lot of love. There's a lot of hope. There are a lot of people working very hard on uh, on problems that seem huge. Like I think a lot about. the think it's story in the Quran about the snake that's putting out the uh, that's putting out this fire. Um, that the, the forest is on fire, and the snake um comes over with a mouthful of water and like puts it on the flames, and a little bit of it goes out, and you know everybody in the story is like, "Why are you even doing that?" And he's just like, "Well, I might as well try." And I think that that was something that was really important to me, and um, and as well the belonging that comes from kind of jumping in and, and joining those struggles. I think finding your hill uh, to die on is something that was quite impactful for me. And I also I I, I got this teaching that was really fascinating um, from from my brother. And I, I talk about it quite often, but it was uh, it's this teaching of Misiwa. So Cree people have this. Um, uh, we have our own, uh, obviously, our own um, astronomy. We have our own constellations and our own stories that are that are embedded there. And and one of the things that um, one of the stories that came from that is is uh, Misawa or, or our concept of infinity of how the stories that are in our stars are already are only some of the stories that have yet to to come. And I think that really understanding this idea of that the universe wasn't built and then we inherited it, but that we are all a part of that great unfolding of the universe, I think was really interesting. It made me feel like, like I was standing at the front of this huge long line of people and at the back of, the, of a huge long line of people. And I think that that sense of place and of role and responsibility really helped me. And I think if, if you're not willing to look you know, I, I think that you get that ability to look for the light when you've been in like this darkness and you really understand it and try to work with it and uh, and know that it's there and be like, well, you know, there is light too. And I think that I choose to focus on that because what else is there to do? I, I find that there aren't, there's a lot of really angry people and I think they all have really good reasons why. And I, I, I don't know, I look into the darkness and I'm just like, okay, well, the fact that there is light, like that's worth fighting for. And, um, and yeah, so that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, the optimism is something that a lot of people focus on. And I'm just kind of holding on to um, what I have now. And if I start to get better, I guess I'll just move into the woods or something. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. So
2: Oh, my God, please don't do that. <laughs> Edmonton would have missed you, I'm sure. i um- Talking, you spoke there a little bit about uh, working on hard problems and just jumping in and trying. And one of the things I saw was that you were at the Standing Rock protests back in 2016. Can you tell us a bit about what you saw there and if um, there are any uses of technology that aided the protests?
0: Oh, for sure. Actually, you know, and the the Standing Rock protests were really, really huge to me for like none of the exciting reasons that everybody's like, tell us about the helicopters that were coming over and how your phones kept going out of service. And like, like there'd be weird clicks if you tried to make phone calls from there and, and, and all that fun stuff. Um, but for me, it was actually uh, seeing how the the Standing Rock suit organized everyone was really fascinating. Um, seeing how they, you know, you showed up and they just assumed that you meant, you know, good, even though there are definitely some undercover people that came in. You know, they assumed that you were there with good intentions. They told you what your role was. They told you, you know, make sure that you're volunteering in all these different places. And I don't know, I think for me, it was this really amazing moment of being like, hey, people, like if you, if you empower people and you, um, you tell them what to do and here's their role, people really get a lot out of it. And, and a lot of people said that, you know, if you, unless you worked in the kitchens, you didn't even really know what it was like there at Standing Rock. And so for me, that was quite fascinating. But and and I think that's actually what really um, inspired uh, Hunter and I to actually create these workshops, because I don't think we as especially like as indigenous peoples believe that if we give people a job and give them enough information not to mess it up, that people will do it and they will get a lot from it. And so I think that that's where that came from. But yeah, technology wise, I mean, the amount of organization that was there was quite stunning. Nobody really knew who was in charge. They had uh, quite high tech ways of connecting with each other. Obviously they were using like encrypted uh, messaging and yeah, it was just, it was, it was quite nuts. Like I don't, I don't think, it, and it happened to be actually the weekend that the, uh, the veteran, the veterans were showing up and that the easement was actually denied by Obama. So it was like a really big, big weekend. Um, and it was something that I'll, I'll honestly never forget.
1: Wow! yeah, that sounds really, really momentous. Um, and like a lot of people we speak to, we can hear through what you're saying is that you really put your ideas into action. And we also saw that you'd created an organization called Indigenized Tech. Could you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, for sure. So um yeah, indigenous tech. So basically I think that one of the reasons, one of the main main reasons I didn't end up going into technology when I was younger was because the classic, like you can't become what you can't see oftentimes, or at least it takes, you know, you know, much more disagreeable people to be able to kind of rise above that and become something they can't see. And a lot of the focus that I have right now in kind of like my quote unquote free time is actually really focusing on how do we get more Indigenous people into this tech space to understand um, these new technologies and to be able to apply them in in our communities to solve like present day, really practical problems. You know, we have um, in, in Alberta, we have quite a few connectivity on reserve of, uh, of people that can actually, they can actually access the internet. But in terms of using them in any kind of like meaningful way to uh, to uh, to actually solve their problems on reserve, it's not really there. Like a lot of our records are um, not digitized, um, or they don't have extra copies. Um, there are so many Indigenous people that have a lot of really important genealogical records, you know, news clippings, um, photographs. They have the only copy, and it's de- there's de- they're definitely not digitized. So being able to just and this is this is my kind of take on the problem is that like there is a, there's a huge supply issue of indigenous people, you know, literally just not being at the table with the skill sets to recognize that these problems that we have a decent amount of them are totally solvable with technologies that is that have existed for like twenty years now. So getting more indigenous people into the industry has been really important, and that kind of actually spurred on talking with these different tech companies in Edmonton and being. Like, hey, like, this is a problem. And they're just like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know that was an issue. And and they're just like, oh, my gosh, actually, now that I think about it, I literally never run into an Indigenous person in my work. And that was something that I was like, yeah, totally. So I think it was a bit of an invisible problem for a while. And it's something that we're trying to raise awareness out of. So what we're trying to do is partner with different agencies, specifically digital um, like marketing, kind of media production types of organizations, and uh, encouraging them to set up um, internship programs so that we can have and actually funnel in more Indigenous people into these industries to understand what it's all about, build some capacity. In these tools, and then hopefully, you know, either find their you know their happy place in an organization, or be able to go and fingers crossed, start their own organizations or initiatives to help out our people. And through that work, I've actually been able to make some really awesome connections with with tech companies in our in our in our city as well as nationally, and have been able to link up with a, another group I've recently gotten involved with called Blockchain for Reconciliation, and they're doing some really interesting stuff, specifically with introducing um, high tech into these spaces. So where indigenized tech is a bit more focused on how do we build capacity and interest in this industry. Among indigenous peoples, blockchain for reconciliation is a lot more, you know, move fast and break things and, and really try to imagine, you know, very, uh, for me, at least, I, I loved uh, uh, Black Panther. So seeing Wakanda, I'm like, that's what I want that right there. So, um, so that's how I kind of imagine a lot of blockchain for reconciliation work is in kind of realizing how our communities could look if we if we implemented technology in a way that was, you know, more congruent with our belief values and systems.
1: What an amazing cultural reference! I've, I've I just got off a, a flight yesterday, and I actually watched Black Panther on the plane, and it was the first time I'd seen it, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, if I'm if we're allowed to say Wakanda forever, then then I would, <laughs> for sure. Um, so as well as all of this really really incredible and, and meaningful work we also noticed that you you have quite a lot of fun with what you do as well and one of the things we we spotted was that you did a keynote at a conference called babes who brunch and uh we thought that was just an excellent name for a meetup so a couple of really important questions for you firstly what is your brunch of choice <laughs>
0: Okay, so I ordered, I think it was Italian sausage and like poached eggs. It was awesome. I was super nervous though, so I could only eat like half of it. I don't know what it is. I feel like this like kind of fake it till you make it is supposed to work sooner, but I still am terrified every time I do any kind of public speaking. But people tell me they can't tell. So I'll just continue to, I guess, be hungry and scared until I don't, I guess. I don't know. (laughs)
1: In my experience, it just never goes away. You just get really good at hiding it. So yeah, don't worry about it. That sounds delicious. And also, in a long-standing One Team Golf podcast tra- tradition, we love to recommend um, some some alcohol to go with this as well. So, what would be your boozy brunch drink of choice?
0: Oh my goodness, is there anything other than mimosas?
1: Well, it depends on the time of day. Like, if you're a traditional brunch person, I think. But, you know, towards the middle of the day, you might have some other options. What do you think?
0: Yeah, you know, okay. So, I mean, I'm going to be real. I love mimosas. I don't know why they feel, like, classy and, like, kind of fresh. And, like, I usually don't like sweet food or drinks or anything. But, like, mimosas just, I don't know. They just really do it for me.
1: All right. Let's go with that. Mimosas on a Friday. Excellent. Um. Also, we, we saw in an interview that you listen to all podcasts at double speed. <laughs> and that, yeah. that really freaked us out, the thought of people listening <laughs> to this podcast with us going at some insane clip. <laughs> Why do you do that?
0: So I read somewhere, basically, that like the human brain, you can actually you can parse language that quickly. Like you can actually parse it. Like I don't actually remember the, 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 the amount of words. Per second or anything, but it was quite high, and I was like, "That sounds interesting." And like, I love podcasts so much. I feel like for some reason, like I'm I'm a visual learner, so like oftentimes when I'm like recalling something from a podcast, I'll remember like what I was looking at, like if I was walking to work or something. It's so like it's not really an ideal way for me to learn, but I really love especially long form podcasts, like hardcore history, very long form, very like dense kind of heavy content, and like it feels really cool to just be able to take in that much content. But obviously, six hours of podcast to listen to every few days because that's that's how many podcasts you follow you have to listen to them fast so it works I mean I feel better about myself because at least I'm not one of those people that listens to it at like three times speed but yeah that's totally my mo
1: all right well we'll give it a whirl (laughs) see if we can pick it up okay um so final couple of questions for you we'd love to recommend to our listeners some interesting things for them to learn or, or listen to so can you start us off by recommending a twitter account we should follow
0: so my community back home, Sucker Creek Creek First Nation, the nation that's right beside us, um, they're basically all related anyway. Like the way that this happens is kind of silly. There's a, there's a young man from the Drift Pile First Nation, Billy Ray Belcourt, who's actually a, like a, an award-winning poet. Um, he's one of mine and my brother's friends. Um, he's just crazy talented, has a lot of very fascinating ways that he talks about being indigenous today. He's like a few years younger than me and I'm just like, what am I doing with my life? So um Billy Ray Belcourt, so he's like at Billy Ray B and it's he's just friggin' wonderful and hilarious. So I highly, highly, highly recommend
1: him. Awesome. Well, for what it's worth, reading about you made us think, what are we doing with our lives? So <laughs> if you feel that too, then that's a bit of a relief. Okay. <laughs> um, so next, one of your double speed podcasts to listen to.
0: Okay, the only way that I'm able to keep up with all of the happenings in our community is with Media Indigena. Just this awesome, basically, news program that goes over everything that's happening in our community, um, you know, nationally. And uh, you can support them on Patreon. They are awesome. And uh, anytime that you see Dr. Kim Tallbear as a guest on Media Indigena, you have to listen to it. She's the most brilliant person. I can't listen to her on double speed because she talks in, like, triple speed. and Every word is gold. So highly recommend Media Indigena.
1: Wicked. Thank you. And maybe a book you've been reading lately.
0: Okay, so Yuval Harari. um, I loved Sapiens so much. And uh, I think it's Lessons for the 21st Century is his newest book. And that one has just been like riveting for me. I just love the way that he has talked about the stories that we have as a culture and how that influences the way that we live and how at the end of the day, we're just story machines. And um, so that really fascinates me. So highly, highly recommend that one as well.
1: You mentioned at the beginning that you were worried about cross-recommending something with a previous interviewee. You almost did. We've had sapiens before, but you you successfully navigated around that. So well done. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, not for profit or social enterprise. We should support.
0: Okay, blockchain for reconciliation. We're in the beginning, kind of days of, of actually forming the organization and the you know the, the stuff that we're talking about. But we will be soon super um, vocal and, uh, and happening on the internet um, and would love your support and people just thinking creatively around how can we implement high tech in First Nations communities and, and make make our country a little more equitable and more
1: interesting as well. Very, very happy to share that. Great. Okay, well, Jackie, listen, thank you so much for chatting with us. This has been a brilliant interview. I think we've only just scratched the surface of some of the amazing work that you and your organization are doing. So, so thanks for taking the time.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be chatting with you both. And uh, and I was ec- ecstatic to hear about the um, the other interviews that I've been having. So to be counted among them is just the best the best thing in the world.
2: Thanks so much, Jackie. That was awesome. That was really cool.
1: What a different interview to the ones we've had in the past. What did you make of that?
2: Oh, that was amazing. I, it made me really want to immediately move to Edmonton she kind of had me at the first question where she was talking about how it's really beautiful there and they have these great green spaces but also this incredible history of being a cradle of civilization and everything that goes along with that with um the Cree people and their their involvement there it just sounds great and I'm keen to visit ASAP how about you
1: Yeah, definitely. Even having been to Edmonton, it really inspired me to want to go back. Although, to be fair, probably not right now, because they do get to the sort of minus 40s in the wintertime, but uh, maybe more of a summertime vacation (laughs) for Edmonton. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think compared to folks we've spoken to before, definitely very much echoing a lot of the public service values that we often talk about, but really seeming to come from quite a different place. So very rooted in in community and in her family and where she comes from and her background, more so than that sort of broader community feel that we've had from people who work in, for example, central government. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. She said at one point, "It's for her, it's about pulling up your own chair to the community table. And that was, that was a lovely image of this sort of collective working towards um, some values that really affect the people and the communities that you live within. Um, so definitely a, a different perspective there. And also a lot of the um, insights she shared around using the technologies and new ways of doing things, but trying to very much ground that in the indigenous peoples and in their culture. And the the balance of those two things probably doesn't immediately become obvious to people. But the more she spoke about it, the more I started to understand um, how she could use some of that that mindset. Yeah,
2: and I liked that she was such a hustler. I thought that that was a different than we've had before. Uh, she talked about her entrepreneurial spirit and how she started setting up businesses from a really young age and has actually used her ability to work in technology and create these businesses to free herself up and provide for herself, but also expanding that to create jobs and awareness of the Cree Uh, Community. I thought that that was really interesting as well.
1: Yeah, what I thought was particularly inspiring was the way that she could really ground some of the methodologies we talk about so commonly. So things like design thinking and um, posing problems rather than trying to build solutions, as exactly the way that she'd started to build her business and the way that her and her brother had had made that happen. She said we we had more of a question than a business plan. I thought that was brilliant and not something you would normally hear from from an entrepreneur of of any sort, particularly a tech entrepreneur, where it tends to come from a specific piece of technology or an an innovative idea. And she mentioned doing lots of of pivoting and being creative and had that great anecdote about learning from failure and why that's so important um, for people to learn about and how you can learn more from those sorts of experiences um, and model that learning of failure to young people and the teaching that's important there. I thought that was that was really brilliant and very inspiring when it comes to someone who's an entrepreneur, as, particularly at such a young age. I was checking through our research before before thinking about some of the questions we were going to talk about here and really made me feel, again, completely inadequate as so many of our interviews do because I think she's 28 and has started you know, numerous businesses and is, is doing such a fantastic job at doing things like working around um, the spirit of the treaties in Canada. And yeah, just a, a fantastic person to interview.
2: Yeah, utterly inspiring. Once again, this podcast just shows how many um, amazing people that have done such great things at such a young age, as you were saying. One of the things I liked about what she said about the work that she does was about bringing Indigenous concepts of the treaty to her diversity and inclusion work. And she talks a lot about how a lot of it works around ceremony and telling stories and engaging in conversations. And I like how she talked about how some people in Indigenous culture really think that that is just for Indigenous people. But with the Cree people, they really want to share those traditions. Yeah, I just thought that that was a really inspiring thing to do. And um, what a gift that those people who go through that training have in being, being part of that and having that shared with them
1: definitely the work she's doing to get more indigenous people into the industry was fantastic to hear about very um very practical advice that she had around getting you know digital agencies and organizations to set up internship programs and bring people in that way we often talk about a lot of the the typical cop-out for diversity and your organisation not being diverse enough is saying, you know, it's a pipeline problem. And that is, is really pushing the problem to the side rather than embracing it. And it sounds like, you know, exactly the kind of thing that she's role modelling there is about solving that problem and encouraging people from, from a grassroots level to get into the technology space. And that was that was really cool to hear about. For me personally, it, one of the best parts of, of our chat with Jackie was her talk about being a radical optimist and that's something we see across the one team gov community um, and particularly why she was inspired to work on such such hard problems um, especially with her experience of depression as a teenager and she she had so many beautiful phrases throughout the interview and one of them i thought was the ability to look for the light is greater when you've had an experience of darkness just her her honesty and openness in sharing that and how it has actually enabled her to you know, to to grow and do some of the great work that she has done rather than holding her back and how she learns from those experiences and doesn't always expect everything to go well um, was brilliant. And I think a, a lesson for anyone, not just in public service.
2: Yeah, absolutely. What amazes me about these interviews is that people are just so candid and Jackie really didn't have to share anything about that at all when, when she could have just given some stock answer to that question but she was so honest and and really shared that with us so yeah i i really I, th- I thought that was really amazing as well and also loved how she used the skills that she had to give back in the way that she could and it's just a real reminder that you don't necessarily have to be in public service capital p capital s to do that there are many ways in which you can give back to communities and and create better conditions for four people and Jackie just showed us that in a nutshell at the age of 28 so
1: yeah definitely shock of the entire podcast listening to podcasts at double speed I still can't get over that (laughs) and I'm wondering if she's going to listen to this one back at that or um or take it a bit more slow to see how we did the edit but um yeah maybe maybe some advice for our future listeners if you're struggling to find time to listen to our One Team Gov show why not try it double speed
2: (laughs) yeah she talked about listening to hardcore history and for the podcast for fans out there hardcore history each episode is four hours. So that does make a lot of sense. (laughs) I I love the idea of Jackie listening to everything at double speed, drinking mimosas over brunch. Like that's, that's going to be my parting idea of her.
1: (laughs) Yep. Thanks Jackie. (laughs) And that's it from the One Team Gov show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast, and Podbean. were also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.